Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. In 2012, the Republican Party put forth Mitt Romney as their standard bearer, a quintessential figure of the GOP establishment, a former governor of Massachusetts, a son of Utah, offspring of a deeply respected Republican governor of Michigan, and a man with deep ties to Wall Street. Romney's candidacy was, in many ways, the embodiment of traditional Republican values. Yet just four years later, the party and subsequently the country towards a figure as unconventional as they come. The seismic shift from Romney to Trump was not merely a change in personnel, but a stark transformation of ethos. But the chasm was even larger. Remember, there were 8 million voters in 2016 who voted for Obama in 2012. The implications were murky at the outset, but one thing became unmistakably clear. The electorate was ready to upend the established order. A giant middle finger was given to all of us. This upheaval was a confluence of the most virulent aspects of our era. The echo chamber of social media, right-wing talk radio, Fox News, the cult of celebrity, and a faction of the electorate that Hillary Clinton infamously dubbed a basket of deplorables. It was a moment of reckoning, a deviation from the norm that our founding fathers had anticipated but had built safeguards against, mechanisms designed to temper the excesses and preserve the republic. But in the face of this challenge, the traditional guardrails weakened. Donald Trump's presidency, and worse yet, his potential future presidency, was not just a rebellion against the American establishment, but an insidious force that cleaved the nation and fostered the contagion of division, hate, and authoritarianism. Today, we're going to talk about this with my guest, Stuart Stevens, a man who has witnessed the inner workings and transformation of the Republican Party like few others, with a career spanning decades in the political arena, Stevens has been a strategist in the upper echelons of Republican campaigns and has grappled with the gritty realities of grassroots politics. In his latest book, The Conspiracy to End America, he sounds an urgent alarm, a red flare, really, illuminating the dark ambitions that have taken root within his former political home. But more than just an expose, it's a plea to confront and quell the dangers that threaten to undermine the very foundations of democracy itself. It is my pleasure to welcome Stuart Stevens here to talk about the conspiracy to end America, five ways my old party is driving our democracy to autocracy. Stuart Stevens, thanks so much for joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I, well, well, thanks for asking me to the party, Jeff. I got to tell you, man, that introduction you did about describing the party, I think I'm just going to shut up and let you keep talking. <laughs> well, was, thank uh, you so much. That, that was that was a fantastic uh, summation of uh, how we got here um, and, and, re and really uh, beautiful, beautifully stated. Well, thank you. I want to talk about the party because the question really is the degree to which the party has responsibility for where we've gotten to today. There was a time when, when people thought early on that Donald Trump was a sui generis character. And in fact, what has happened is that the Trumpism, for whatever it is, has infected the entire Republican Party like a virus. Talk about that first. Well, look, I, I'm really glad we're talking about this because um, I think it's an essential question of, of the moment. You know, a, a lot of people were wrong about Trump in 2016, but it is really, really hard to find somebody who was more wrong than me. I didn't think he'd win the primary or the general. And when he did, you know, I had a lot of Republican friends kind of from Bush world or Romney world, that establishment world, as you rightly put it. They said, hey, you know, Donald Trump hijacked our party. And I'm like, you know, guys, I don't know. Like, 
when the plane gets hijacked, the hijacker isn't really popular. Like nobody is saying like, you know, I'm glad we're not going to grandma's and we're going to Cuba. Um, so I, I don't get this. I don't think we can say that. Uh, Donald Trump is by far the most popular figure in the Republican Party. And that led me to ask, you know, how did this happen? And which led me to write my first book, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. And the conclusion I came to, which I thought was the only intellectually honest conclusion, it was not a fun one, was that a lot of these base principles we put out as values were values at all. They were marketing slogans. And they didn't really mean anything. Because I don't think people change deeply held beliefs in a few years unless there's some extraordinary intervention. I don't believe in UFOs. If one lands and you put them on the show, Jeff, I'll believe it. <laughs> Not until then. Um, and I don't really know. And I think it's that conclusion, which could be stated, basically, that Donald Trump didn't change the party. He revealed the party. There's also the sense of a party being terrified of its own electorate. Yeah, you know, um, it's fascinating. After Romney lost in 2012, the party went through this process, and I think it deserves credit for so-called autopsy that runs previous to chairman of the party commission. Like, why have we not won the popular vote only once since 1988? And that was in 2004, and I worked on that campaign, and believe me, we were lucky to win it then. And the conclusions it came to were pretty obvious, but important to state. We needed to appeal to more non-white voters. We needed to appeal to more women who work outside the home. We needed to appeal to more young young voters. And then Trump came along and it was almost like this audible sigh of relief, like, thank God we don't have to believe in this stuff. We don't have to do this stuff. We can just win with white people. Um, and I really think race is at the core of this. You know, um, Trump's coalition is 85 percent white in the last election. The country's 60 percent white. And it'll be less so by the time we finish this podcast. Um, we're headed to minority majority country. In a way, we already are. Those who are 16 years and younger in America, the majority are non-white. And I really, really like the odds that they're going to be non-white when they turn 18. So that is what the party is terrified of and why it's going through these extraordinary efforts to change the way we vote. Because there's been this shift. Democracy now has become the enemy. If you can't win with democracy, you therefore look for another system. And it's what Joe Biden means when he says Republicans are for uh, democracy when they win and they're not for it when they lose. And he's absolutely right. So the party, to me, had a choice. Um, do the necessary work, difficult, to appeal to more non-white voters uh, and expand the party or try to maximize the white vote. And I think, sadly, it went down the latter rather than the former. And yet there seems to be a bit of a metamorphosis taking place, not for the better, where we see in some of this latest polling that more and more black voters and Hispanic voters are moving towards Trump. Yeah, I'm skeptical of this, to be honest. Um, and, and what does that movement mean? So that, so look, here, here's some fascinating numbers. 1956, Dwight Eisenhower got 39% of the African-American vote, 39%. Nixon got 33%. Um, Jackie Robinson and Will Chamberlain campaigned for Nixon. Then it dropped to 7% with Goldwater in uh, 1964 when he was opposed to the Civil Rights Act. Now, you could have made a case that African-Americans would drift back to the party once the Civil Rights Bill was passed. 
for shared values of cultural conservatism, faith, patriotism, entrepreneurship, but it didn't happen. Trump got 8%. So that means you've gone up one point every 56 years. That's going to take a while. So when I look at these numbers, um, I think they're different with Hispanics than they are with African-Americans. Um, it, I predict that we'll be sitting here a few days after the November elections next year, and Joe Biden's going to have gotten 90 plus percent of the African-American vote. Hispanic vote is always more perplexing in politics because, you know, Hispanic in the census is a self-identifying uh, quality. You, you opt in to identify yourself as Hispanic or not. And there's always been a divide among so-called Hispanic voters, among those who speak English at home and those who don't. And I forget the exact number, but Romney did pretty damn well with those who spoke English at home. So at a certain point, you say, okay, what point are they not identifying as Hispanics any more than people are identifying as Italian-American or Irish-American? And they're voting uh, more by the uh, less by, driven by their ethnicity, less by their heritage. So, look, I think it's something the Democratic Party should worry about. In Bush world, we really focused on this. We got up to, I forget the exact number, but north of 40, not very north of 40, like 41, 42% of the Hispanic vote. Um, I, I think the Democratic Party should, should, should be worried about it and should be focused on it. Uh, but still, overwhelmingly, the Republican Party is a white, increasingly regional party. And talk a little bit about the the party itself, the party apparatus today. You have seen it evolve to, to where it is today. And how much of the blame should lie with the party itself for getting us to where we are? I, I think on a scale of one to 10, I'd say about 100. You know, go back to this moment in December, I think it was December 15th, uh, 2015. When Donald Trump called for a Muslim ban. Now, a Muslim ban is a religious test. You know, if, if I show up at the, you know, I've got like an English passport and I show up at, at JFK and I, they say, well, you know, what are you? And I say, well, I'm a Quaker. I used to be a Muslim, but now I'm a Quaker. What are they going to do? Like ask me trivia questions about William Penn or something? I mean, it's absurd. It's a religious test. And they, what Reince Priebus and the party should have done say, look, you know, we can't stop people from voting for Donald Trump. We can't stop Donald Trump from running. But if this party supports anything, it's the Constitution. And this party, speaking as Reince Priebus, as long as I'm chairman, will not support a candidate who does not believe in the Constitution. If that means I shouldn't be chairman of this party, so be it. And had they gone down that road, it, it would have been the right thing to do, the morally correct thing to do. The political consequences, I think, are incalculable. But, you know, up and down say, four days after the election, when it was clear Donald Trump had won, it was really clear 24 hours after the election for anybody that knew anything about politics. But OK, give it four days. If every elected Republican in Washington had just had their comm shop put out a simple statement congratulating the president-elect of the United States, Trump would have been isolated. It would have limited the ability for him to rally crowds because a lot of it is you know, people have doubts about Trump. They think he's a little weird. But then their senator, who they think is perfectly normal, supports Trump. They go, well, that person knows Trump better than I do. He must be OK. And that happens up and down the party. So I think it's a complete collapse of the party. And I, I think it's extraordinarily uh, anti-American 
It's a violation of the legacy that they were handed by the greatest generation. People like my dad, who spent three years fighting in the South Pacific, 28 island landings, came home, never talked about it, like hundreds of thousands of others. That's the legacy. And they, they can't even get their comm shot to congratulate the president-elect of the United States. I mean, compared to 28 island landings, that's a pretty easy lift. And we now live in a country in which the majority of one of the two major parties in America doesn't believe that we live in a democracy. They don't believe Joe Biden was legally elected. That means we don't live in a democracy. And I think we're still just at the beginning of the beginning to understand what that means for our body politic and our society and our civic ties to each other. It is frightening and, and in many ways, you know, we, we get a mathematician here, but the odds are overwhelming, it seems, that the entire party showed so little courage, that so few people of the party, from the party, would come forward to do the right thing. I mean, we could name them on one hand. Listen, brother, I I can't agree more. And it, it honestly, you know, when I, my book came out in 2020, it was all a lie. And somebody would say something like in an interview, like you just said, and I would start to talk about it. And it, it really was difficult for me to talk about without getting very emotional because I felt so betrayed, so lied to. You know, I help elect a lot of these people. I, I would have bet everything in the world that they would never do this. And they did. And it's like, you know, I, I worked in Chris Christie's election. I love the guys. When I, I was in an airport, when Chris Christie in 2016 endorsed Donald Trump and tears came to my eyes, I felt like I was watching a friend overdose. And now, you know, Chris is out there saying the right things, but it's like, dude, why? Why? Um, the guy even tried to kill you in 2020 in debate prep with COVID. You know, he waited to December 6th to try to, or uh, December 6th to try to kill Mike Pence. I mean, I don't get it. Um but I tell you, man, I will never ask myself how 1930s Germany happened because it's a straight up repeat. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to be the same results. I don't think we're going to have 100 million people die. I don't think we're going to have a world war. But it is good people who know better doing the wrong thing for deeply corrupt reasons. And it's extraordinary. I don't think we've seen anything like it in American history. And, you know, I wrote this latest book because I think we honestly can't say how it's going to turn out. I think if Donald Trump wins, it'll be the last election we can recognize as an American election. I know it will be. And, you know, part of the problem, Jeff, and you struggle with this every day, is how do you talk about this without sounding alarmist or crazy? And to me, it's like a serious pandemic. You know, whatever you say at the beginning will be inadequate, but the end will prove whatever you say at the beginning will be alarmist. But whatever you say at the end, it's going to prove to be inadequate. So I think we have to realize that this is an existential crisis for America and act accordingly. There is this sense that, that people think, or we want to think, that at some point the fever will break. And it seems right. that, that, that everything that happens has exactly the opposite effect. It not only prevents the fever from breaking, it, it increases the fever. It increases the, the craziness of it all. That's how it happens. Extremist movements, which the Republican Party has become, uh, become more extreme. It, it, they get more obsessed with purity tests. Happened with the Red Guard, happened with the Khmer Rouge, happens with the Republican Party. Um, you know, I, I, I just step back and look at it. So Donald Trump organized a mob that broke into the United States Capitol and tried to kill Republicans and hang Mike Pence. And they still supported most of them. So 
if a guy organizes a mob that breaks into your workplace and tries to kill you and you still support him, you think there's some principle he's going to violate that's going to make you want to be against him? Like, I don't know. That's too much. You know what he said about Putin? No, it's a complete collapse. And look, I I think we have to accept that re- Trump runs the Republican Party, which he does, because the Republican Party likes Donald Trump. They want to be Donald Trump. And you can ask yourself what that says about America. But I, I really am at a point where I don't care. I just want to beat these people. You know, I I think there is an extraordinary reluctance among our journalist class, of which, you know, I have many dear friends, to call it out as racism. You know, all these Trump voters in a diner in Ohio pieces. To me, it's like sending the best journalist in America to a strip club to try to figure out why do men go to strip clubs? <laughs> it's just such a fascinating question, you know, maybe because there's naked women. Um, and I, I think that it is driven by race and you know when i have these conversations with my parking friends they go well, come on you're saying that everybody voted for donald trump's a racist I go, no but i think overwhelmingly the vote for donald trump means that you care about something more important than having a racist as president because you can't call donald trump not a racist so where were all the all the votes that they said were illegal and we can't certify atlanta philadelphia detroit huh funny about that what do they have in common overwhelmingly black majorities and those are the votes they say are illegal that's just straight up jim crow racism they couldn't stop them from voting so they want to stop them from being counted call it out for what it is how much of it is rape pure racism in that sense certainly a, a portion of it is there's no question about that but the other part of it is that that at least gave impetus to it early on may it may have gotten beyond that now is the idea that it is that, and, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier about demogra- demographics, the changing face of the country, the way the country's changed, the way technology has changed, that, that it is right. not, you know, it's not the 1950s anymore. And, and, and that there is this pent up anger that, that is feeding this. And, and somebody like Donald Trump comes along and has done such a powerful job of, of, cleaving that even more and building up that anger. Yeah, but I still think that's about race. (laughs) The one economic group that Donald Trump carried in 2020 were those who make over $100,000 a year. This isn't about economic anxiety. Look at those who are being convicted on January 6th for the insurgency. Hell, some of them took private planes. These are middle-class folks. And that's one of the deeply troubling things about it. When you read much brilliant writing that's done about how to stop militant movements, fringe movements, right-wing movements. It usually begins with economics, try to integrate them more into society. You know, that was true of, say, the Branch Davidians or Randy Weaver. Um, but these are people very well integrated in society. And I, what I come back to here is, why is it? There is one group of Americans who really have been discriminated, who really have a reason not to believe in America who have been murdered, tortured, raped, laws passed to block them, enslaved. These are black people. So how come black people didn't storm the Capitol? How come they have marches? How come they keep registering voters? How come they keep believing in America? They believe in America. And, you know, these domestic terrorists who are storming the Capitol, overwhelmingly white, they don't believe in America anymore. So I don't know. I, I uh, I don't buy the economic anxiety. You know, Trump lost working class voters. He won white working class voters. Um, 
And let's don't forget, you know, Mitt Romney got 47.2% of the vote and lost. Trump got 46.2 in 16 and won and got 46.9 in 20 and lost. He's never gotten more than 47%. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I am sort of, well, I had a going out of business sale <laughs> or any any uh, optimism about the Republican Party. And I do judge these people. I judge them harshly. I think they're portraying what it means to be an American. And I'll die on that hill. They may be Americans by accident of birth, but not by their beliefs. And America is more than a place on the map with a flag. It's an idea. And they've they've given up on that idea. And that's their right. And one of the hallmarks of when democracies fall into autocracies is the autocrats use the freedoms of democracy to end democracy. But I'm sure as hell going to fight them. And I sure as hell am not going to respect them. What happens to the Republican Party if Trump loses this next time? What do you think? Fascinating question. I think the answer is not much. Now, because I, I think it takes repeated defeats to make the party change. Fear is the best and arguably the only, fear and pain are the only teachers in politics. And I think the party has to has to be crushed in its current incarnation. If you have seven of nine candidates on stage, raise their hands and say that they'll support a guy if he wins a nomination, even though he's been convicted of overthrowing the government of the United States, that's a party that doesn't deserve to exist. You got to burn that party to the ground. And I say that as somebody who spent 30 years helping build a party and pointing out flaws in the Democratic Party. But the Democratic Party, say what you will, is the only party in America that's a pro-democracy party. And the best hope is that these Republicans lose and lose and lose and lose and finally change. We need a center-right party that's sane in America. But we don't have a center-right party in America now. What, what, what does it mean to be a conservative in America? If you held a gun to my head and said, explain that in five minutes, I'd say, shoot me, it's going to save time. I'm not going to do this. I'm, I don't know how. Is it Ron DeSantis who uses the power of the state to attack Disney? The happiness company? This is a small government party? This is an, a, a free enterprise party? Is it the party that believes it's a deep, deep infringement on your personal liberties to have to wear a mask, but not to tell a 12-year-old girl who's been raped and pregnant she has to carry the rapist child to term? That's conservatism? I don't think so. And say what you will about somebody like Elizabeth Warren. She, she has a theory of government. She can articulate it. She can argue with you. You can think it's crazy. You can think it's wonderful. But you can have a conversation. You can't have a conversation with Nikki Haley about a theory of government when she says that she will support someone who tried to overthrow the government of the United States for president. You can't. It ends there. So we need that. And I hope one emerges. But I think it'll be the best hope is 2032. One of the things that's remarkable to bring it back to where we started is how quickly the collapse came between 2012 and 2016. Yeah. You know, I, I spend a lot of sleepless nights thinking about this. You know, you may have voted for Obama, more people didn't. didn't. You may hate Mitt Romney, but say what you will. And I think people have a better sense of Mitt Romney now as a person. He would have led the party in a very different direction. And yet it would have been the same party. So maybe what it tells us is what we used to learn in civics classes when we had them is that leadership matters. Why is it that America didn't go fascist in the 30s when there was a huge fascist movement in America? Probably because Roosevelt was president and not Henry Ford or Lindbergh. That probably saved us. So I think, though, that history tells us that once a major party adopts hate as a platform, which the Republican Party has, 
it's very difficult to unwind. And, you know, I wrote this book because there are these, there are these five things that are always present when autocracies emerge from democracies. And what are they? Support of a major party, they've got that. Propagandists have that. Uh, financiers, they have unlimited money. Shock troops, well, of course, we saw that on January 6th. And an emerging legal theory to justify it. So if Georgia passes a law that says the state legislature can overturn the popular vote when they do it, it'll be perfectly legal. And that's really where the focus is now on changing how we vote. And it's being done quietly. It's being done, being led by the same people who led the Federalist Society to change America's judiciary. They have been given $1.6 billion in the largest political contribution in American history. Um, and they are extraordinarily dangerous because they're confident, they're patient, they're well-funded, and they're smart. And, you know, you look at the Federalist Society. It started a little weekend retreat at Yale in 1984 called, uh, I think it was called The Future of the Conservative Judiciary. I mean, that's like a term paper. And, and out of that grew the Federalist Society, which it's hard to say the Federalist Society didn't win. And, you know, there was recently this test case in the Supreme Court on this judicial legislative theory that state legislatures have the ability and the right not only to overturn presidential popular votes, but all popular votes. So there was some sort of, you know, celebration when it failed six to three. But then you go, well, wait a second. Three people in the Supreme Court think that state legislatures can overturn any popular vote? because of some nutty references in the Federalist Papers? Really? Well, that's a lot ahead of where they were in 1984 when they had that little weekend retreat at Yale. So I wouldn't get too cocky about it. Is there anything that makes you optimistic? <laughs> no, I'm very depressing, Lord. I depress myself. <laughs> I gave uh, my most recent book to a dear friend and said, it's short but depressing. And he said, Stuart, so are suicide notes. Um, <laughs> so, yes. There's something that makes me very, very optimistic, and that's younger voters. As I said, the majority of Americans under 16 are non-white. They're the future of America. Um, they are where the country is headed, and they are more in sync with the country over uh, at large than the Republican Party is. You know, there was always a trope in politics that younger voters don't vote in large numbers, and they're proving that wrong. And... I think they're going to save us. That and our immigrants. And a lot of those are immigrants. We have a history in America of being saved by our immigrants, and I think it'll happen again. Um, and if we can just hold on, I think if we can get through the next two presidential elections and hand off something that looks like a democracy, we'll be okay. But it really is going to depend on those younger voters. You know, Biden's best group in 20 were those under 30 for our oldest president. It's pretty damn interesting. Um, and you know, it, it, it is fascinating how quickly it changed, but look at, look at an issue like same-sex marriage, 19, uh, 2008, every presidential candidate, Democrat and Republican was against same-sex marriage. And we don't even talk about it anymore. Now I have a theory and I think I'm right that Republicans for the most part, never really accepted same-sex marriage. They just sort of shut up about it because it was a loser. And I think a lot of the venom and hysteria directed at trans Americans are a way to try to claw back that same-sex marriage vote. And, you know, certainly Justice Thomas has been very clear. Alito's been very clear. They would vote against same-sex marriage in a heartbeat. You read what they write, they'd vote against interracial marriage. Kind of ironic for Thomas. Um, 
But, you know, if I ran the Democratic Party, God help us, Jeff, um, I would wake up every day trying to get in a cultural war because I think Republicans uh, are in the minority on the cultural wars. I mean, look at when you know, Republicans went to war, Trump went to war with Nike over Colin Kaepernick. How'd that work out? Well, Nike made $9 billion. <laughs> I think, you know, they sort of won. How'd it work out when they went to war with NASCAR over the banning the Confederate flag? I mean, Republican Party got in a culture fight with NASCAR and they lost. How did it work out when they got in a fight with Walmart over mandatory masks in their stores? I don't know. I think Walmart, you know, and it's the same with this sort of hateful rhetoric that Trump uses and others that you're supposed to fear non-whites moving into the suburbs. I mean, you know, a lot of people live in the suburbs. You might live in the suburbs. Everybody I know in the suburbs, if a non-white family moved next door, they would do everything they could to welcome them or a Muslim family to show their kids this is what you're supposed to do. That's where America really is. And, you know, say what you will about Ronald Reagan. To be born in America, Ronald Reagan saw the country that to be born in America, you had won life's lottery. There were inequalities in America, disadvantages, but nobody was disadvantaged for having been born in America. So you cut the Trump's America. And to be born in America is to be a victim. You're a sucker. You're a chump. There are these powerful forces out there like Canada <laughs> that are, you know, taking advantage of us. And he's going to even the score. It's a completely different way of seeing yourself, seeing your relationship to your government, your country. And I find it extraordinarily uh, humiliating to feel that. You really feel that. You, you, you really think that, like, America is not the greatest country in the world. Really? Where do you want to live? Well, unfortunately, for a lot of them, they would say Russia. Because they look at Russia and what they think Russia is, it's not, but, you know, run by white men. There's no women in power, no non-whites in power. Elections are performative, not determinative. As Putin says, there's no gay people in Russia. That's obvious. And they like that. I mean, that looks good. And that's a lot of why so many Republicans are supporting Putin against Ukraine. And that's extraordinarily uh, sobering and depressing. Stuart Stevens, his book is The Conspiracy to End America, Five Ways My Old Party is Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy. Stuart, I thank you so very much for sharing your thoughts and spending time with us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. Jeff, thanks for, uh, for asking me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.